Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. Willow Walsh. And Reagan Skaggs. And you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good this season. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. The music is provided by WELP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today, we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive titled Not Newcomers and How We Ended Up Coming to Gary. And we have a special guest with us in the studio today, Kat yeah. Peters. Hi. Uh, big welcome to Kat. Um, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your background and give them a idea of how to contextualize your perspective today? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, well, I'm really excited to be here because I'm a big fan of this show. I listened to the podcast version. Just a little plug for that. <laughs> um and um, because I'm a mom of two little kids and I never know where I'm going to be at any given live radio moment, so yay podcasts. Um, but yeah, I grew up in South Dakota uh, for my whole life until I came to VU for college. Um, so I lived in Valparaiso for four years for college and then I stayed living here for two years after that and hung out with people in town that speak Spanish. Um, I was a Spanish major. And then I um, moved to Costa Rica for what I thought was going to be one year, but it turned into nine years. Wow. Um, and I lived there. I was um, I went as a volunteer in a community of Nicaraguan immigrants living in the city, of, the capital city of San Jose. Um, so I did that for the full nine years that I was there, but I also got a job at a study abroad organization. Um, it was called the Institute for Central American Development Studies. And so that was my paid job. Um, I got married when I was there to my husband is Costa Rican and um, we had a baby there. And then when he was about seven months old, my Costa Rican husband was asked to please come and work in Northwest Indiana for a little while. Oh, that's so interesting. So we like <laughs> said, circle. okay. So we, um, we had just bought a house there. We kind of just dropped everything and, um, you know, did what his company asked him to do and moved back here. For, so we've been back almost five years now, and we've had a second uh, child. We have two little boys. And, um, yeah, I do some part-time teaching Spanish at IUN and uh, am involved in other community organizations. I started in the pandemic. I started my pandemic project was a blog um, called New Backwater, where I try to write about connections I see from these three places that I'm from, South Dakota, mm -hmm. Northwest Indiana, and Costa Rica. How did you first get attracted to Spanish? Like, why did that end up being your major? And like, I think yeah. of South Dakota, I think it's even whiter than Indiana, but maybe yeah. not. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> for sure. Well, I don't know. Um, yeah, why Spanish was necessary. Well, was an offering. I went to a Lutheran grade school, and in sixth grade, we were required to take Spanish. That was just okay. part of the curriculum. So I started doing that in middle school. And then when I went to high school, I thought, well, I've had some years of Spanish. I'll just keep doing this. And I liked it enough. But then after my junior year of high school, I went with the Spanish club on a trip to Spain. 
And I was just like blown away showing up, you know, here I was in Spain and little children were speaking better Spanish than I was, you know, <laughs> and they weren't translating through mm. English in their heads. Mm -hmm. And it was like this epiphany that mm -hmm. other people speak other languages and yeah. that's the world, you know. And so I think it just kind of, probably be, maybe because I was from South Dakota mm -hmm. where I didn't have a lot of other perspectives around me that were different from me, um, that was just like, it blew my mind. So I really wanted to learn more about that. And I liked Spanish, you know, it's a beautiful language, but then also this, like, I can get to know other perspectives by, by getting to know another language. So yeah, that's really what did it for me. Yeah. That's, do you translate still in your, are no, you, you I think in Spanish bilingual? now? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I have a problem thinking of the right word in English or that's like a cool thing when you when there's a better word for what you're thinking in a different language mm -hmm. you know you just have more tools to talk about stuff mm. it's kind of fun that is really cool yeah well we are so happy to have you with us today thanks, thanks for, for joining me. us I'm excited <laughs> Do you want to introduce the first story, Willow? Yeah, so um, like usual, we'll go ahead and play the stories and pause in between each to have a conversation. Um, and this first story today is titled, Not Newcomers. I think one of the most important things to know about the Latinx communities in Northwest Indiana is that these are not newcomers. This is not a new population to the area. Dating as far back as the turn of the century, between the 19th and the 20th century, there have been Latinos involved in the growth of turning what was once a very marshy swamp land into this industrial, once powerhouse of the nation. They have been instrumental both as workers, as community members, as speakings of cultural institutions. Mexican nationals can really migrate between the Mexico and the United States in this turn of the century between the 19th and the 20th because the border at this time is not rigid. It's not even well demarcated. Some of the first early boundary markers that occur on the border are cairns, just piles of stones with a placard that lets you know, you know, this side's the United States, this side's Mexico. The problem is if we take into account the border between the United States and Mexico is roughly, you know, 1,900 miles or so. You can't then mark every stretch of the mile. And so it's very feasible to then, if you are a Mexican residing in Sonora, to cross into Arizona without even knowing it. Even the creation of railroads that connect cities like El Paso with Juarez in Mexico create these travelways, these transportation avenues. The ease of passage between the United States and Mexico is very desirable for industrialists in the Midwest, as well as mine bosses, ranch bosses in the Southwest, pretty much any capital owner can really utilize then this open border to bring in cheaper labor that they can pay less. They really don't have to concern themselves with year round. They could hire them in seasonally and then just really, I don't want to say abuse the system, but really utilize the system to create more wealth for themselves. I guess you could say the most concrete uh, movement of Mexicans into the region comes in 1919 during the steel strike. And in East Chicago and Gary, the Calumet region in general, including South Chicago, was one of the largest steel producing regions in the United States at the time. So a lot of eyes turned towards what would happen here. Militia was called in uh, State's Guard or Army, and it sort of disperses very quickly, ranging from October to November, tending to be like the height of the steel strike in the region. Maybe five, six hundred Mexicans and Mexican Americans are brought 
into the region during this two-month period, word of mouth becomes one way because there's this broader circular migration and these patterns of migration with Mexicans and Mexican-Americans communicating with other migrant farm laborers that then there's work in places like Detroit, places like South Chicago, Indiana Harbor, and Gary. There's also the use of labor agents that we sort of see as well when we talk the great migration with the African-American community where companies send labor agents to pool halls places like Kansas City, Omaha, El Paso, and use them as recruiters to then bring in migrant laborers to serve, whether as seasonal, as strike breakers, uh, across the Midwest. Frederick Marvila remembers his father, Ignacio, telling him a story of how Ignacio and his brothers, at this point, the steel strike has gone so long, it's starting to enter the final days of October, the beginning days of November, that his father and brothers are smuggled on not by train tracks because the strikers are now blocking the train tracks, but by boat. They are sailed in from Chicago, cross Lake Michigan, straight into the inland still, where then the company houses them in company barracks, providing them company food to avoid them ever having to come face to face with the strikers. What a Mexican worker, steel worker, allows them to do is then with this growth of unionization, really take a Mexican national, try to offer them less, try to create this sort of disunion within ranks. Because if they can force a union member to hold animosity towards whether it's an ethnic European, a Mexican steel worker, an African-American steel worker, it really sort of stifles any further unionization efforts. On that note as well, as a steel industrialist, the conditions that they then have to provide a lot of these foreign nationals as steel workers are not necessarily to par with a lot of standards. So there's plenty of reports that note that Mexican steelworkers were living 24 people to an apartment, and they would then just make sure they were all on different shifts. Whether or not the Mexican nationals and Mexican-Americans knew that they were breaking the strike is up to debate. Some are just told that there are these ample job opportunities. They're not sure why they're brought in by train. I'm sure Ignacio Maravilla doesn't remember why they had to boat him in early scholars who will talk then that the Mexican in general was one of the greatest threats to these early unionization efforts, then need to also recognize that they become some of the staunchest supporters in the region. People like Miguel Arandando, who's one of the first trustees, he's elected, I believe, inner guard in the 30s to the USW Steelworker Organization Committee, the SWOC. He's one of the first local Spanish-speaking leaders who comes up during this time. So 1919 strike, especially in the region, really in sort of lackluster in the sense that there's not many gains for the workers and the companies really get to continue the practices well into the 30s. Um, in the 30s, there's a lot of studies that have come since with the Follett report that have showed that companies like Inland and U.S. Steel were burying weapons in anticipation up until like the little steel strike in the 1930s. It's sort of, I guess you can consider the 1937, 36 little steel strike as the actual book into what starts in 1919. Because then with 1937, we then see the growth of unionization, the steel workers organization committee becoming the USW and really a strong present militant union becoming cemented into the region. You're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, Reagan Skaggs, and today our special guest, Kat Peters. 
Um, and we are playing a story from our Flight Paths initiative, which in some ways is a little bit different than some of our stories insofar as this is a historian who is giving us more of like the national story as opposed to like his personal story. Um, although if you are interested, Emiliano Aguilera also has his own personal family story um, up on our website. And you can find more about um, his recounting of the history of the Latinx Hispanic community in Northwest Indiana through um, the Flight Paths Initiative category or tag at, at, at welcomeproject.belpo.edu. So we have here um, the story that we named Not Newcomers, and I'm curious to know. Um, well, I, I, I would want to start with, like, what does it mean that the border isn't rigid at the end of the 20th century? No, the beginning of the 20th century, because um, that seems so opposite of how I think of our, our, our border mm -hmm. today with Mexico. Um, so what does he mean that it wasn't so rigid? Well, he's talking about these like rock piles are called cairns. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But so there's these like rock piles that sort of like distinguish the Mexican and U.S. border. And they're saying that, you know, it stretches for so many miles that it's so impossible to have like constant markers across the entire border. So essentially it was really easy to sort of like cross in between these country borders and not even and not even know that you're crossing in between them. Mm -hmm. No, it made me immediately think of there's a couple different um, I guess memes of like it'll show you pictures of other borders particularly across the EU so like oh just so you know you're entering France oh just so you know this is Spain like but it's just like a sign essentially like there's no wall there's no like guard at the door so to speak like it's just you know just so you know just a quick FYI mm -hmm. That actually makes me think of driving from Indiana into Illinois. Yeah. On like two, which must become another highway when it crosses over into I Illinois. I think it's something. 17. Oh, I'm just thinking of the like different. the local highways. Anyway, like um, there's something in me that recognizes and believes I've crossed a border. But like if you stop and think about it, like nothing's changed in the <laughs> land right there. There was a Walmart <laughs> over here. There will be a Walmart right. over there. <laughs> yeah, I think like, yeah, there's not the landscape is the same. The like culture of the people in that area is probably very similar. Mm -hmm. And so for the local reality, it's probably not as big of a deal that there is a border. It's more of a, mm -hmm. a national, like, geopolitical project than, than any real local reality. Yeah, which would still be true today, right. except that now we have this wall that is has been and is being built or we find other ways to make that borderline clear even if we don't have a wall there whether it's some way of like observing the border through drones or mm -hmm. militia that are driving mm -hmm. the outlines of the border um mm -hmm. yeah so it's interesting that the reality of the land and like you were saying, Kat, the cultures around the border haven't changed, but our understanding mm -hmm. as Amer I don't know, maybe mm -hmm. just as Americans, I'm not sure how Mexicans think mm -hmm. about it from their side. Um, and maybe for really specific reasons that aren't local to the border necessarily, like maybe because of, yeah, political projects, uh, 
related to how we want to think about immigrants or labor or about how we want to, who we want to blame for drug trafficking or mm-hmm. different things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting that it seems like, and maybe that's this is just because of the lens that the historian was asked to bring, but that the border and labor mm. are so tied together mm-hmm. around the question of migration and then how we decide to favor that or disfavor that depends again on more like political mm-hmm. conversations or needs um, that are happening at the time. Yeah, because he also brings up other other workers like he talks doesn't he talk about the great migration of African Americans yeah. also and there is no border around that. So so politically we can't that's more difficult if we want to separate workers along racial lines but if there's an action there's like a geopolitical border then maybe that makes it easier to delineate that mm-hmm. at least in know. our imagination right yeah, yeah. I don't know because I would say they did do they did do their darndest to put like a geopolitical border around African Americans right. by like ghettoizing groups of people yeah. and like you know mm-hmm. segregation Jim Crow all mm-hmm. the other terrible things mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so is it I don't know but that's a very depressing idea because is it that easy to forget the personhood of somebody who just you happen not to live by hmm. you know or live by because Jim Crow is well, that's what I'm saying yeah. yeah. Like, you just, you don't, they're not your neighbor. You don't see them out at the same grocery store as you, so you just forget that they're there. Like, well, and I, he talked about this is so interesting to me. I put uh, on my little Facebook announcement that I was going to come on the show today, I put a picture of a banana plantation because I feel like I learned about this in Costa Rica on banana plantations. And then before I learned that this is how it operates everywhere, which is that the, like, the companies are dividing workers along racial lines mm-hmm. for the benefit of the company mm-hmm. to avoid people organizing themselves in a block as workers. So, you know, when it's in someone's interest to delineate and make those demarcations and it's an us and them thing, um, maybe neighbors wouldn't do that, but there's incentive for someone to mm-hmm. foment that kind yeah. of division. Well, I would love to give you better working conditions. I would love to give you a raise, but X ethnic group is making it impossible right. for me to do so. Mm-hmm. So you should really be mad at them. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I mean, um, who does the historian say, at least in this narrative, benefits from the open borders? I mean, companies, explicitly. It's (laughs) explicitly capitalism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that continues into today, you know, like, and one of the big examples being agricultural industry of all shapes and forms, like the meat and the the produce sides of the agricultural industry are very reliant on immigrant labor, particularly Mexican immigrant labor, Mm -hmm. not even immigrant labor. A lot of times they'll they'll bring them over, have them work, potentially disable them, and then send them back Mm -hmm. over. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting because I'm assuming that there must have been benefits for the Mexican nationals, too. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, whatever question the historian was given didn't prompt that necessarily. But um, I appreciate that he named that the benefit to the industrialists, because I often feel like today when people talk about open borders, they're thinking about 
liberals who just want, you know, America to be a place that anybody is welcome. And they're mm-hmm. they're critical of open borders because they're critical of there being too many different kinds of people mm-hmm. like needing what America has to offer as opposed to like who actually really does benefit from mm-hmm. open borders. Mm-hmm. Um it's funny, not funny, haha, like how the actual reality gets reversed and people believe the inverse to what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is why I think it then, you know, it becomes confusing to think about, but then it becomes apparent that like the border discussion is more like political for it to serve a certain purpose because so many people actually just do benefit when there's more of a free movement of people. So, you know, it does seem to be more of a, like a blame game and using certain groups for certain political ends. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. Um, You're here with Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, Reagan Skaggs, and today with Kat Peters as well. And we are talking about um, the presence of Latinx Hispanic communities here in Northwest Indiana, and a little bit about the origin story of their arrival here. So we just have been discussing the border at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, um, and uh, the actual arrival that our historian focuses on for Northwest Indiana has to do with the 1919 steel strike. And I'm curious, like, out of that part of the story, which details really stood out to you all? I mean, there was like a conscious effort to like really keep the strikers away from like the Mexican national workers that were coming in. Like the fact that they like put, like brought them over by boat from Chicago through Lake Michigan. Like mm-hmm. that's just, and the fact that they're like, oh yeah, they didn't need to go out in the community and get food because housing and food was provided. Like there was no reason to have any sort of like mixing. And I think that that's really like an interesting tactic, like to like, as you were saying, this sort of like this separation and sort of like otherness that was sort of created because like, I mean, I guess we don't know what would have happened, but just the fact that you had this sort of like line of segregation that kind of happened between these two groups of workers like became the reason that you know they were able to hold that sort of ethnic animosity towards each other and i don't know i just like i sort of wonder like it like are we still getting caught up in that today and i think yes and it's just like how is it so easy to sort of like be fed this like narrative and I don't even know if we're like feeding a narrative I don't know but it's like this sort of like otherness that's so easy to sort of like jump into that feeling of like that person isn't at all like me they're not a person they're like Mm -hmm. not an individual they're just part of a group and I don't need to care about them or their Mm -hmm. experience or their family and like it's just it's like too easy for us to do that today and I just Mm -hmm. I don't understand like Mm -hmm. how does this Mm-hmm. continue to permeate like past the decades mm-hmm. well even past like give like let's so people are striking they are trying to unionize they're trying to have better working conditions for themselves for their children like anybody who might future work that like you know this is a big deal and this is also a, a time of big labor movements in general in america the steel industry being one very important part of that so like assume the best of this person and then they're like wow i'm really fighting for my rights i'm really fighting for the rights of others i'm really fighting for my community and then you have somebody come in and scab and 
they're oh this person doesn't care about my rights this person doesn't care about my community this person doesn't care about my ability to provide for my family they must be bad and unfortunately they specifically use the fact that a lot of these people probably did not know english Mm. and the fact that these people are a different skin color to their advantage and had them put like it was literally them the company putting mexican people in this position Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Kat. <laughs> well, I was, there are two different thoughts that I was thinking, but one, you know, after I had kind of seen this play out in like banana plantations in Costa Rica, when we moved, first moved back to the United States, we lived in St. Louis, and I learned about a history there where in the early 1900s, there was a strike of workers that was like both black and white workers together, mm-hmm. and it was so threatening to the capitalists in St. Louis that they created a whole um, event and system called the Veiled Prophet, this guy with a white hood. And anyway, it was this whole big thing. But then, like a few years later, the workers were more divided and there was a strike of white workers that then black workers were brought in to break the strike. Mm -hmm. And it caused the white workers to invade the, the black neighborhood and have a violent riot that was very deadly so the company didn't have to do anything because Mm -hmm. now the workers were turned on each other and they just benefited yeah they just yeah the company just benefited Mm -hmm. and the workers hurt each other Mm -hmm. you know yeah and it was seemed like such an obvious example of what happens when Mm -hmm. when that yeah people are turned against each other yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and then this stuff makes me think about like voting rights and the current voting struggles we're having in America. Of like, oh well, we want people, we want intelligent people to vote. We want people to vote the correct way. So that has resulted in you know stripping more people's voting rights or attempts to do so. And like, mm-hmm. it just touches everywhere. And I don't like to think about it. I mean, I like to think about it, but I don't like to be angry about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's tough. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that this effort sort of backfired. Like in the end, like they thought like. I guess the company thought like, okay, we can bring in these workers and we can pay them less and put 24 people in a single apartment Mm -hmm. and just make them live with it and then sort of get out on top. But what ended up happening is that he talked about these Mexican workers ended up creating Mm -hmm. like a steel worker organization and ended up unionizing Mm -hmm. and fighting for their own rights. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think that's... That's something to think about, too. Well, there mm-hmm. is a really big culture of labor and unionization in Mexico in particular. Like, there, that is a very important part of the culture. Like, the joke is if you go into Mexico outside of the resort areas, like, you will see people on strike, like, almost all the time. Because mm-hmm. that is a very important aspect of Mexican culture is, like, unionizing and labor rights and, like... Yeah, no. Just because they're a different color than you and they don't speak English doesn't mean they're stupid. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that a lot of corporations don't take that into account. Mm-hmm. They, they don't see the full personhood and it mm-hmm. backfires on them, thankfully, mm-hmm. for everyone else. But Well, and I think the same thing is happening, like, right now when he talked about the the workers being brought in by boat. But I know that, like, right now there's kind of a... Um, what would you call it? Like, it's in limbo. The negotiations are in limbo between the workers of the oil refinery and Whiting and the oil companies. And um, 
like the people that are not unionized at the oil refinery are like on notice right now to if there is a strike they have their like duffel bag with all their mm-hmm. clothes and they're supposed to stay working in the plant like in 2015 when there was a big strike they were in there for like months they couldn't leave because they couldn't cross the picket line and so it wasn't bringing in people from the lake but it was mm-hmm. like once you're in you're in and you can't leave and that's like happening right now so like i feel like yeah learning that history then you kind of see the context for like all the previous times this has happened and it's still happening it's maybe not as much along the same racial lines as that particular story we heard just now but it's the same idea same method yeah i don't know if this is related to the story of labor or not but um why do you think it's important that we don't think of Mexican, Mexican-Americans as newcomers to the region, to Northwest Indiana? Like, why is it valuable if we know that they have been a part of shaping this region since the turn of the 20th century? I mean, I think it's easy. Like, I mean, I grew up in... Valpo, and I went to like a predominantly white school for all of my schooling. And so I think it's so easy to sort of like slip into the notion that like, oh, if there's only like a couple of people of color in my grade, that like it's like white people that were here first, and then there are other people coming. And I think it's 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 sort of easy to sort of think about it in that way. And then again, you still have like the sort of political notion of like people coming over the border, constantly coming over. Like you just like it's so easy to think that it's so new, but I think what's valuable about remembering that it wasn't like a white established area, like this was a multi-ethnic established area, because then you can sort of, I guess, I mean, I think maybe it breaks down that sort of like sense of othering, like this is something that we've all sort of created together and we've all been here since the beginning. And so then we can work together towards making something better and not sort of like, decide to like dig your heels in the ground like oh i was here first i deserve all Mm -hmm. of the rights and so Mm -hmm. i think maybe it would be valuable to think of each other as like long-term neighbors that have been here in order to fight these corporations that are benefiting from the idea that Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we weren't all here at the same time no it is all about like the sense of proprietorship like this is my spot this is my space i've owned a house here my father has owned a house here since i don't know whenever (laughs) but I don't know. I think people forget that, especially in the South and Southwest, a lot of the land here was Mexican land that had been Mexican and Mexican indigenous land for generations, like thousands of years. And then we came in and said, oh, do you have paperwork for that? That mm-hmm. that goes with the U.S. government paperwork? No. Oh, OK. Then this is free land and we can have it. Thank mm-hmm. you. But like, I don't there's so many pivotal American things that are actually like particularly Mexican in culture, like Latin America in general, but particularly Mexican, like cowboys, cowboys are extremely like Mexican culture. Like that is where that comes from. Like the Southern notion of farming and ranching and hats and boots originates from Mexican. Oh God, I'm going to butcher the word. It's like vaqueros, I think. Mm -hmm. And like, that's that's what cowboys are. That's what ranching is. That's what all these other things are. So our, our, my hometown is not Valpo, um, and it's in a smaller. I don't know if it's wider, but it's definitely smaller than Valpo. Valpo's, yeah. Anyway, um, and we had 
on the fairgrounds, one of the things they would do during the warmer seasons is they had rodeos. And, like, my stepmom was somebody who, like, would go in and, like, one of her side jobs was, like, cleaning up after the rodeos and stuff. And I remember people at my high school being so surprised, like, these, you know, you know, white girls mostly would like have this idea of what country is and like wear you know their shorts and their boots and go to the rodeo because they thought they were gonna have like a great time and like oh it's a very mexican event in my hometown one of the few i would say very mexican events like public events in my hometown is to go to the rodeos Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That's where you get like a lot of the like taco vendors and like other food vendors. Like they're going to the rodeos because this is an like a very important part of Mexican culture. And I don't think a lot of America thinks about like, oh no, this is American. A lot of times it is Black American or it is Mexican. Mm-hmm. It is not American. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Luis Araya, who's a, a writer. He does all genres, but I know his nonfiction best. Um, he talks about. In American English, like our language, he starts listing off all the different words whose etymologies come from, like, Mm. totally different ethnic (laughs) origins, which we just, in our day-to-day life, have absorbed and tend to think of as, like, American. And Mm. that sort of, the invisibility of the history, I think, is actually... Or maybe our ignorance of the history... doesn't set us up to actually realize Mm -hmm. how interconnected we really are. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of, um, this is black history month, right? And I've seen a couple of social media posts already, like black history is American history. And it's like, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, because we've allowed ourselves to think that America is white. And so anything that's not centering white identity has to be an alternate history, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. then we can argue about, can we teach this in school right. or not? Oh, and, God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, this is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community-supported radio. Also streaming live from WVLP.org. We rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. Please consider supporting this station by visiting our website, wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax deductible. We'd sure appreciate it. And this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte here with Willa Walsh. Megan Skaggs, my awesome co-hosts, and today our special, special guest, Kat Peters. So we've been discussing um, one of our stories from Flight Paths, which is a historian talking about the arrival of the Latinx Hispanic community in Northwest Indiana. Um, And I don't know that we're done with the story just yet, so I don't think we have to transition to our second story um, off the bat. But I don't know, is there anything else that you all wanted to probe here before we move forward? I mean, I think, like, the takeaway here is that there's, like, so much history Mm -hmm. in this region that we're just not privy to. Like, Mm -hmm. I didn't learn this in school. Mm -hmm. I didn't... I only learned this by working on the Welcome Project. Like, this is not something that's, Mm -hmm. like, common knowledge. And so I think maybe the takeaway is, like, we should learn more about this region. And then there's like a lot more than what we sort of see on the surface, which is a predominantly white community. But don't let that sort of 
allow you the freedom to make assumptions on the type of cultures that were here. And I don't know, I mean, I guess maybe more broadly too, like this idea of all of these histor- this historical things that America has done that were not just really taught in school or it's really brushed over. Like I'm thinking last night, I was like, I don't know, I was on TikTok as usual and I'm scrolling <laughs> through and one of the videos I'm looking at is like the aftermath of like the Hiroshima bomb that was dropped. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I have never seen this picture before. Mm. I have never seen the aftermath in Japan before. First time. I'm 24 mm. years old. How is that mm. the first time? Mm. And it, it, it's like devastating. It is, it is, it like just like bleached spots on the ground where people were standing mm. that just, mm-hmm. it, and that like, I don't know. It was just like, I can't believe that this country tolerates us. <laughs> like, and I was just, and they sort of did this like drone shot of like, and you could see like how far the span of the area was. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking like now today, like if we're going to go to war with Russia or Ukraine mm-hmm. or, you know, something mm-hmm. like that, if there's some sort mm-hmm. of like militarization, it's like, you know, I have opinions on it as a person, but I'm not actively doing anything towards that Mm -hmm. and so to think that how many like thousands of people were in this city that felt the same way like you know just living their lives living their lives conscious that the war was going on but not you know doing anything Mm -hmm. for or against it just living their lives that just died because Mm -hmm. of the u.s Mm -hmm. that is just i don't know and we just don't know this Mm -hmm. and how what what a problem that creates down the line to not know mm. the things that have happened because then you can take stances on it mm-hmm. that are just from your limited historical understanding of what has happened because mm. you don't know how devastating things are. If you're not told, if you're not shown how devastating it is, then you don't think it's a big deal and then you can sort of argue, argue against it. Like, yeah, we should have done that and mm. screw those people because you don't see the pictures of how horrible mm. it is. And so I think that's where we sort of get into that gray area, the easiness it is to treat people as an other, because you really don't understand like how this region came together mm-hmm. and how we've been progressing. Yeah, I really love the, I, I think several of you have touched on like the, just the richness of knowing the real history and it doesn't necessarily have to be threatening then. Like if we've all always been here or, or how did that exactly happen? And just when you mentioned Russia and Ukraine, like, so I've been trying to research things about my, like the heritage of my children who are both Costa Rican and US background. And I never knew this. I mean, I sort of knew, but my ancestors, I have a handful of like great, great grandparents who are Germans from Russia. (laughs) And they were living, they came to the Dakotas, you know, by because they had been living in Odessa, Ukraine, and Crimea, like their (laughs) background. And they were brought there by Catherine the Great, who was trying to populate Russia with her own German people, like she was German. So I never knew this before, but there was another set of like geopolitical ethnic group that was being used for a political purpose, you know, but then like if you go back and look at the history that was you know hundreds of years ago and there was russia in crimea and there was a conflict and there was a you know so like even what's happening in the news today about that is not new either Mm -hmm. you know it's like hundreds of years old and my ancestors were a part of that and i never knew that so i yeah it is like really helpful to 
kind of have that understanding and maybe we can like more objectively see the present because we know what's led up to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Without being so emotional about mm-hmm. like what you said or what you said or who to blame or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I've loved when, especially when we interview elders, like some of our interviewees that are 90 mm-hmm. um, years old, when they go back through their family story, you really get the sense of the family story is, again, like the American story or, in your case, even a global yeah. history. And I wonder if that's a good segue to our second story, because I feel like the similar thing happens um, with this next storyteller. Like, it's pretty clear Um, at least insofar as I've begun to understand the Northwest Indiana story as a story of American history, like her family story also illustrates that sweep. So maybe it's Mm -hmm. a good time to add that in. Yeah. So this one is titled How We Ended Up Coming to Gary. We grew up in the neighborhood that was near Pulaski School. My grandfather lived in the neighborhood. He didn't live on our block, but he lived a couple blocks over. And he had come to Gary, gotten a job at the steel mill, was very active in in the union, in the United Steelworkers Union, Uh, was a griever for the coke plant, because at that time, most African-Americans who worked for U.S. still worked in the coke plant, because it was the dirtiest place in the mill. But I, I guess they made what was a decent salary at that time. So he encouraged my father to leave Florida and move to Gary. All of my folks, my father and my mother's side, they were all from Florida, Gainesville, Alachua, Florida. And so that's how we ended up coming to Gary. My mother did day work. And I don't know if you know what day work is, but that is when they went to uh, white people's houses and clean them up. My mother used to catch the bus and do that. We called it East Gary at the time before they changed their name. They didn't want to be associated with Gary and they changed it to Lake Station. But she worked in East Gary. She also worked doing day work at some houses here in Gary. On Fifth Avenue, there were a lot of doctors who uh, worked at the hospital who lived on Fifth Avenue in those tall apartment buildings that you see now. Uh, They lived there. My mother worked in some of those. And so that's what she did. And my dad worked at U.S. Steel. I know whatever he did, wherever it was, it was hot. I remember him saying that. He would come home and say it was so hot, you know. And at one point, they they were laid off for some reason, and he worked at a cleaner's. And then after he went back to U.S. Steel, he did that part-time. He worked at a cleaner's. Uh, He was, as he would say, a presser. He would press clothes. As I said, I know my grandfather worked at the coke plant, and he did a lot to help as many African-Americans as he could. Well, he helped them get employment and helped them to not be mistreated. And he was very involved. And he would take me at one point down on Fifth Avenue. they, They called it the Philip Murray Building. The lady who worked in the office was black. She was African-American, Jeanette Strong. And he and some other white guys who were in the union were instrumental in getting her a clerical position there. I was probably too young to remember, you know, when he became involved in the union. I just know that he was. And I know that even after he left the area, some guys who worked at the coke plant had said to me, 
I remember your grandfather. He was really active. He did a lot of things to help us. As a matter of fact, Curtis Strong was the person who took his position after he left, retired, and moved back to Florida. And he said a lot of the accomplishments those guys in the coal plant achieved was because of my grandfather. So I felt real good about that. Yes, I did. I still do. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio on WVLP 103.1 FM and streaming on live at WVLP.org. And we just heard our second story for today's show. Um, This is from a black storyteller about her family's arrival in Gary. And uh, before we played it, at least we were thinking about how her family story reflects America's story. But I wonder, you know, what features stood out to you as she was talking, just even generally speaking. I mean, I think it was like what her parents did and also her her grandpa did. Like, so her father and her grandfather both worked for the steel mill and then her mom did day work um, in East Gary, which I think is so interesting. I love when people bring up Mm -hmm. East Gary (laughs) because like I had no idea, like it's always been Lake Station to me, but now it's East Gary and that one building, which is like, I think it's like the Eagles Club or something. It's like right off of 130. It used to have East Gary and like concrete above the building mm. and they just remodeled it this year and took it huh. off the building. Oh. I'm so mad about that. <laughs> but yeah, but just like how, like what brought her family to this region and like what they did for work, which I think is like a story we hear a lot, like the steel mills bring a lot of different workers here. Yeah, our previous the historian had referenced the Great Migration, which is how American historians generally tend to think about um, blacks moving up from the South, trying to escape Jim Crow and just find better opportunities for themselves. And um, I thought it was interesting in relationship to our conversation about borders and migration that the journalist Isabel Wilkerson, in her book, The Warmth of Other Suns, explicitly talks about the great migration as like refugees actually they were Mm. fleeing from Mm. trauma and violence and so it's interesting to think like even if we don't see a border between north and south or white and black in that kind of way that we imagine the border between mexico and america is so clear she seems to think like in this lived way there really was this border that um, African Americans were trying to cross as they escape the trauma of enslavement and uh, Jim Crow to get to what they had hoped would be freedom Mm -hmm. and opportunity in the north which they found some of obviously but um, also it wasn't necessarily maybe as free as they Mm -hmm. had anticipated which maybe is true for um, immigrants generally that come to America. It's not everything that Mm -hmm. they have imagined. I also thought it sort of stood out to me the kind of word of mouth that I think her, Mm -hmm. her grandfather had come first and then had said, it's, it's kind of a decent salary. And maybe there were other reasons, you know, why he thought his family should leave Florida, like you're talking about. She mentions a salary here, but... But first, someone went, and then they said, oh, family, like, I think maybe you could come, too. I think that's really, like, normal for, mm-hmm. you know, a family to kind of follow each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, it also just really stresses to me the importance of work 
in life like mm-hmm. how mm. valuable like work is mm-hmm. and like being able to support yourself is because of you know there are so many people who you know move for work like i kind of moved from my very small hometown to here mm-hmm. for work like mm-hmm. it's just how vital that is mm-hmm. yeah I'm looking at you, Reagan, because, and of course, viewers can't, listeners can't see that. But I'm curious, like, I feel like there's something more there that you're getting at or noticing. Like, is there an assumption that you're combating that when pe- you, I don't understand that, what you're asking. Um, like, are you, a, is there an assumption that other people make that work is not valuable or? Oh, I guess I, what I mean by that is that. People will, with, in the conversation of immigration, people talk about, like, the stealing of jobs, which is preposterous, first of all. But they also talk about lazy immigrants taking Mm -hmm. advantage of the system. But the reality of that is, is, like, people are trying to have better lives for themselves, and they are trying to have better lives Mm -hmm. for their families and their loved ones and their neighbors and their communities. And in order to do that, the most sustainable way to do that in any country but especially here is to find better work mm-hmm. like that is really what it, it comes down to it's not this like malicious thing that a lot of and i think a lot of white people do that whether they realize it or not mm-hmm. of moving for work even if it mm-hmm. is just as i am a white lady i have moved a city mm-hmm. for work mm-hmm. like a lot of mm-hmm. white people that i know moved mm-hmm. states mm-hmm. for work a lot of people move uh, states or cities for college in order to prepare for better mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Like this is just a very, very like tacit part of human existence, and it's not uh, an evil thing, yeah, mm-hmm. or a, uh, a intended badly thing. It or is, it's, and is it's a, not a whim. It's not like yeah. yeah. Oh, I thought I would just try this. Yeah, it's this is like a, a, serious, a natural yeah. give and take and flow of living for mm-hmm. all people. Is mm-hmm. I need to find a better job. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that's really helpful. And why would we, if we do it for ourselves, why would when somebody else does mm-hmm. the same thing, why would we look at it so why would differently? We demonize it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. because, you know, different color, different language, whatever, mm-hmm. different culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we haven't named today on our show is racism. And I think that's built in or it's embedded in some of the conversations we have been having. But I do think we can't ever talk in, we, we can't ever talk completely about that, that process of othering, at least in America without thinking about race. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe there are other places where other hierarchies are more dominant in terms of that particular nation or culture, but in America, I just feel like we still need to keep naming that that racism is something that we use and gets reinforced by how we we other people. Mm-hmm. Like I was struck by she has this, I don't know, like almost throwaway line. Um, most African Americans who worked for U.S. Steel worked in the Coke plant because it was the dirtiest place in the mill. Mm-hmm. I'm like because like mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. what. What's going on there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's like because African Americans <laughs> want to work in dirty places. Mm-hmm. So that that because is like the other side of the equation. It's mm-hmm. like the job that they will be given mm-hmm. because white workers don't want that job or 
that's the one place white workers won't protest yeah. if people of color are hired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it yeah. seems like there's more to, yeah. No. We'll hear about that because, well, yeah. yeah. No, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I'm <laughs> just like, from the, like yeah. from the storyteller. Yeah, right, right. right. Like, yeah. yeah, I want to know more why she said that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think about that now, even with, again, within the context of um, Latin American uh, movement into the U.S. and work into the U.S. of like agriculture. Um, so, again, I, I have a big beef with the meat industry. But if we put that aside, we're going to talk about like the, the fruits and vegetables side of it. There's a reason most of that labor in the U.S. is completed by immigrants, again, particularly like Mexican and other Latin. American immigrants. And it's because they don't pay well. It's hard working conditions. It's very, it has to be by the nature of it, very fast, very skilled work. But it also requires hand picking, which is supposedly expensive. But if you get a bunch of people who are not citizens here, you don't have to pay the minimum wage. You don't have to insure health care. Mm-hmm. You don't have to insure that like, you can house a bunch of people in these tiny trailers and then just swap mm-hmm. them out every season. Like, these are all things that, again, like that continue to happen because, you know, a lot of Americans, particularly white Americans, are like, well, I'm not going to do that work. It's not worth it. And I don't want to. Mm-hmm. And this is I'm not calling anybody lazy. I think that's mm-hmm. a stupid construct that doesn't mm-hmm. properly exist. But the fact of the matter is, is that these companies on some level recognize this need for extremely cheap labor and exploit it mm-hmm. with people of color, just like they were using like Latin Americans in the previous story as scabs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it gets kind of ironic when it is, like, when Trump was president, um, it's like, send the immigrants home, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it's going to be people who, I guess I'm making this assumption, (laughs) that are hiring the migrant workers, I'm assuming they're Republicans. I'm assuming they're in the same party Mm -hmm. that is, like, saying, we want a wall, and... I'd like to think Democrats would at least provide minimum wage, you know, maybe? I don't know. (laughs) Like, I mean... I don't know. I feel like the economic system, people use it as it benefits them Mm -hmm. because that's another human impulse and probably Mm -hmm. party doesn't get in there. But, but it's, I don't know, like you, I would hear a news story on NPR about somebody who wants immigrants to come because of the migrant work. And I would feel because of my tribal allegiance to liberal politics that that person must be on my side or something but it's like "Mm, i don't know it's not Mm -hmm. like they have the best interests of the Mm -hmm. migrant worker at heart Mm -hmm. it's more like they have their own interests and then of course all the american consumers who benefit from yeah that uh, equation yeah yeah Yeah. it's the same thing happening to this person's you know the african-americans who are coming up Mm mm-hmm which again, I kind of feels really reinforces that journalist's argument about the the refugee yeah. talk. You know, which part are you feeling like that comes out in her story for that? Or I mean, there's they're leaving. I mean, I honestly don't know that much about like Florida's racial history. I think it's bad. <laughs> it's probably bad. Yeah. I know that like, a lot of Cubans live in Florida, and there's like a whole situation surrounding that. Um, but I don't know a lot about their, like, their, their, I don't know about Florida's, like, I don't know when Florida became a state. I don't know about their role in, like, chattel slavery. I don't know about their role in Jim Crow. I don't, I honestly don't. When I think of South in history, I think I could tell you stuff about Alabama, Georgia, and, Mississippi. like, Mississippi mm-hmm. and um, Louisiana. I think that would, I think that would tap me out, though. <laughs> but I think that's another area of, like, learning more about history because I read, because I'm interested in, like, 
my dad's a lawyer, so I'm interested in like Supreme Court justices. I don't. But uh, um, there's this great book about Thurgood Marshall and how when he was with the NAACP going down to Florida um, to and like the the young men that were working in orange groves and it sounds as bad or worse as anything I've ever heard from Mississippi or, or Alabama. And, um, I never knew that about Florida. You know, we get this image that Florida is the sunshine state. Mm -hmm. It's where Disney world is. It's where Midwest (laughs) old people go to retire or whatever. (laughs) But, um, but we don't learn a lot about, it's also seems like shorthand when she says Gainesville, Florida, like I want to know what that place represents to her and kind of what they were leaving behind when they came. Cause I'm thinking it was probably more than palm trees that they were leaving mm. behind, you yeah. know, but yeah. we don't necessarily have that history right in front of our minds. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about why Florida isn't just another Southern state in that list. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's something particular about its history as part of the country that somehow, Mm -hmm. because I feel like some of the stories I've heard about lynchings have actually come, lynchings of black Americans have come from Florida too. So Mm -hmm. it definitely is a part of that black experience in the South, but somehow it has stood apart from those Mm -hmm. other Southern states. When I think of like racial minorities and like, in Florida, the, what comes to mind immediately is like Cuban, like Cuban mm-hmm. influences mm-hmm. in Florida, and that's probably just because mm-hmm. I took a lot of Spanish classes, and that's mm-hmm. what they would talk about when, mm-hmm. in Florida. We're like, okay, so like mm-hmm. a lot of Cubans are in Florida, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not any expert, but I do recommend that book is called "Devil in the Grove" about Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP in Florida, and it. I don't know if it answers that specific question about why we don't associate Florida yeah, with yeah. the South, but. It firmly placed Florida in the same kind of, yeah, racial yeah. imagery and s- slavery and Jim Crow that we, we know about, I guess. Yeah. Well, before we head out today, we want to invite you listeners to check out WVLP's full schedule of shows at WVLP.org. We particularly recommend Morning Black, which airs live every Saturday morning at 8 a.m., Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge is a platform for discussions surrounding the concerns of race and ethnicity, specifically within and about the African-American community, and that program is underwritten by donations from members of the Northwest Indiana African-American Alliance and their community partners. So that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at Asana Yoga or AsanaCenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at RootsMarketCafe.com. Visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakma, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support WVLP and our show, you can make a donation by going to wvlp.org slash support and Kat thank you so much for being with us today thanks for having me it was so fun (laughs) until next time